Koto and welcome back to another episode of In the Sheds on Code with Kingy where for this show I sit down with a member of the Wellington Pride and arguably the biggest advocate for women's rugby in Aotearoa in Alice Soper. Now the outside back turn hooker shared a little bit about her rugby journey and followed that up by explaining what went into her calling out the NZR midway through last year before then finally rounding it off by enlightening me with some of the problems that the women's game still faces and what she would do if she had the powers to address them. Enjoy. Kia ora Alice and thank you very much for accepting my invitation on the Code with Kingy. Like I've sort of mentioned previously, I'm wanting to do a lot more in the women's space because there is a lot of growth here and there's a lot of potential. And ultimately, you know, I'm pretty uninformed, um, which, which is a sad thing for a guy who claims to be a code head, the fact that I only cover one gender or, or one side of the scale um, but you know with my podcast and some of the connections that I've made I'm hoping to you know make a difference not only for myself but for any of the listeners that tend to tune in so yeah kia ora and uh, welcome on. Oh kia ora man and thank you so much for having me and hey you know we've all got to start somewhere um, you know it, our education is is just about reaching out making those connections and and like you say it's not something that is unfortunately easily it's as easily accessible so you know, reaching out and taking the first steps and hopefully, you know, we can spark up some interest because it's a big year for us this year. Um, yes. And <laughs> we want to convert as many people around as we can so we can fill the stadium um, come September for the World Cup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fingers crossed that stuff is all going ahead and we'll, we'll get into your views on the women's game, but like anyone who invests himself in the game, they are at some stage a player first. So why not share with us a bit about your rugby journey and where you grew up and how you started playing? Yeah, sure, man. So um, I a pretty typical Kiwi kid, so started playing on the uh, playground at lunchtime with the boys. Um, I grew up in Wellington Central, so that was at uh, Calvin Normal Primary, so a school that didn't have any grass. So we used to play um, touch when the teachers were watching, um, and then less, uh, less of touch and more tackle um, as soon as they disappeared. Um, but it wasn't until I um, was at high school that I got to play organised rugby because it just wasn't a thing... Um, for girls to play, like my, my parents looked around and it wasn't any opportunity for me. So I played football when I was young, but when I got to high school, which was Onslow College, uh, I was really lucky. Um, my local um, sports coordinator, Marama Toroa, she was an epic uh, women's rugby player herself and very passionate about trying to set up a um, girls team. And so we actually combined with our traditional rivals down the road with Newlands College. They were mainly our forward pack and I was in the back line at Onslow. Um, and we played in the um, local comp there. So started at high school, then got um, pulled over pretty quick to play in club because at those uh, times, what was that, 2002, they didn't have as many restrictions in place. So um, Marzi could see that um, I was pretty keen on my rugby and so invited me to come play sevens, um, club sevens with the women at the end of that season. So I did that, played for Javel, um, and then got picked for the Wellington team, which was a bit ridiculous. <laughs> had played eight games of rugby in my life and had no idea what I was doing, but I was just quick, so they chucked me in there. Um, and then played for Johnsville through my high school um, as well as um, for my college and, and Wellington Secondary Schools and that. And uh, then at the end of that, we ended up transferring over to Winery. So my last year at Javel, we had um, Uncle Ken, Ken Laban and Piriwepu 
were our um, coaches over there. Uh, there's some silly things that went on there. I mean, I can't, or I can't get into that, but um, that's a longer story. So we ended up walking out on that club, pretty sexist um, bunch that were there at the time. So I walked out on that club and came over to Wainui. Uh, played there from 2010 uh, to, well, last season. Um, but I also had a couple of years um, over in the English Premiership. Um, so I played for the Wellington Pride to the, uh, what's that, the, our, our version of the NPC. Um, so the FPC, Farah Palmer Cup, uh, since 2014, um, and then went over to the English Premiership in 2017. So that was a new competition that was set up, like Super Rugby, over there for women. Um, played there for two seasons, also played for a county side, played for counties uh, for um, Surrey over there, um, then came home and back uh, playing for the Pride now. So that's, I guess, the roundabout tour. Unfortunately, uh, last year, Wainui didn't have a women's team. Um, so despite I played, you know, 100 games, I was uh, one of the um, first group of players to be finally recognised with our 100-game blazer. That took, you know, five years of um, work with the club to get them to recognise that, um, but was one of those first um, group of players that was recognised as, as Centurions for women within Wainui. But last year they didn't have a women's team, so I had to jump over the hill uh, to play for Patoni. Um, my mm. mate, uh, Jackie Patia, uh, she's over there, her husband, Fred uh, Ferretti, he had been our coach at Wainui in 2016 when we last won the championship um, for Wainui. Uh, so I kind of followed them over there to um, Petoni. So that's unfortunately where I'm, I'm lacing up at the moment. I was just about to say that's a bit of a, a bit of a jump in terms of. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't want to bang on about Petoni any much longer. Um, but. <laughs> I mean, you've gone on to mention that you've had some pretty um, rich experiences of rugby going over to England, would, would obviously be close to the top of the pops for you. I mean, you've been um, around the likes of Ken Laban and Piriwipu, two legends. But having been around the game so long, and, and we'll get into this a little bit more in terms of like how, um, in terms of the, the future of the women's game, but how much has the women's rugby landscape changed, you know, since you took it up? Yeah, as a youngin, to where you stand now as someone who's more so just giving back rather than, I guess, I don't know, still having that ambition to crack on iron. Yeah, it's an interesting one, man. I think um, my ambitions are changing for our sport because, like you said, I've probably got a, only a couple of seasons left in me where I'll be any good. Um, and so that's where I'm, I'm looking back at this time and so to answer this question in a roundabout way is for me, not enough has changed. Um, I, I see that we're still fighting a lot of the same fights that we were um, when I started in this sport nearly 20 years ago, uh, and that really frustrates me. And I think it's, um, the, you know, we've we've seen some great gains, obviously, um, at the very top. So when we're talking about the fact that now, you know, black ferns are contracted, um, so people can be paid. We'll we'll add there though, not really a living wage. It's not a heck of a lot of money that, that those girls get um, paid, and a lot of them were probably making more money in their previous roles. But you know, hey, they're still getting paid to play now, so that's cool. But that's only uh, about 50 contracts that are all, uh, are offered um, in the women's game, and there's around you know 2,000 of us senior players who are registered through the country. So that's a pretty small proportion. Um, when you're talking player base. So I guess outside of that that, that playing group, a lot hasn't really shifted and, and we're still seeing some um, pretty basic stuff 
that hasn't been sorted and I take that right down to the grassroots because that's where everyone starts you know if you're lucky you get through the system and you get to the top and you get in that black jersey but in order to get there you need to be playing at the grassroots first and I see so much of that where people are just hit up against gatekeeper and there's um, some pretty uh, interesting situations that you'll walk into as a, as a women's player, um, particularly here in Wellington, uh, where, you know, it's a bit of a um, hit and miss about whether, you know, how supportive your club environment is. You know, a lot of the time you'll hear stuff around one team, one club type of stuff, but how often do you really see a men's prems team come down and support their women's side? Not very. Um, you know, we, we hear a lot about that and we don't necessarily get along to the women's team's fundraisers. A very rare that, um, you know, the old boys at the bar would know any of the um, women players, even if they have worn a black jersey. So there's not necessarily a two-way relationship there that happens within the club environment, but also within our um, provincial stuffs too. It's, there's a, uh, it can be, you know, it can be good and bad. Like we still got some pretty rookie stuff that happens. You know, we 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 um we have to take time off work to travel to um play for our province. And sometimes we get good notice on that, and sometimes we don't. And so then girls are out of pocket, having to have taken um, unpaid leave to go and play for their city, you know. And it's one thing to not be paid, but it's another thing to be essentially paying um, through loss of wages and that. So I think there's a lot that can be sorted out, but so much of it just comes down to some basics around communication and um, identifying that our game is different. But different doesn't mean bad, you know. It's but it's just like we actually have to recognise and celebrate those differences and and develop something that can actually su uh, support and sustain growth within our sport. Because I think too long we've been kind of a tack on point where uh, it's you know the afterthought and oh I guess we also have a ladies team. Um, but you know we're the the only. If you look at the statistics worldwide, we are the only part of the game that is growing. If it wasn't for women's rugby, rugby would be falling over. Would be in a massive decline. So it's about time that we recognise um, that role that we play, and the fact now that globally one in five players is a female. So we're not a minority in the sport anymore. Um, we're here, and we need to be treated with more respect, I think, and and recognised and celebrated for all the um, different things that we bring to our sport. Well, exactly. Well, the numbers don't lie. And I mean, outside of maybe the resources and the acknowledgement of the women's game, I mean, again, like having been thrust into the representatives club and having paid for the pride for an extended period of time, is even, I'm, I'm, and I'm not trying to nitpick here, but is any, is there been like a, I guess, a, a cultural change or, or a changing of the attitude with, I don't know, a, a lot of the rugby supporters or people sort of involved with the rugby game? I mean, I, I'm, I'm, this is pretty just a question. I'm just, I, I'd like to think that there has been yeah. considering the change that there's been. Like, yes and no, man. I think that the shift has happened um, more probably in general public than it has in boards and people that administer our sport, I think. But and I don't think that would be much of a surprise because I think we, we look at our, who is still representing our game and it's still... Way, you know, male, pale and stale, hey? Like, it's still kind of the same old white guys that were there in 1983. Um, and, and that's not good for women's sport, but like, but it's also not good for our Pacifica and our Māori players either. Like, we, we are the sport now. It's not what it looked like 20 years ago, but we look at who is uh, making decisions for us and who's around boards, tables, and they're not us, you know? And we're still in, um, you know, we're still, you know, making most of those decisions is coming from them. But if you look at out, outside, you look wider, and I look at the way that things are received by the general public, and there has been a shift. Like, little things like... Um, 
the fellow Alex who runs the uh, the Legend of Marty Banks page. He's been really interesting, man, in this last year. Like that was a page I'd seen and been aware of as a rugby fan for a while, right? But I'd never engaged with it because I was just like, it's going to be a whole bunch of banter bros who are going to get caught on the fact that I'm a girl and not take any of my opinions seriously, right? Because, you know, what would a fucking girl know? Sorry for swearing. What would a girl know about um, rugby? Um, whereas he's been so good at, at getting in behind and supporting and actually calling out a whole bunch of this stuff. And it's been interesting to see the way that his his audience has shifted and been receptive to that too. So I think there is a real appetite within our a wider rugby community for something different and for um, embracing and supporting the women's game. And I think a huge part of that um, has come from the top and, and amazing um, performances that we've had from, you know, our, particularly our National Sevens side. I think often they are held up as the example, but really that's just because Sevens has a regular programming of um, games. I think if our Blackburn's uh, 15 side have more regular um, you know, match fixtures, then people would get just as excited about that, but it's so sporadic. Whereas with the World Series that happens for Sevens, we're consistently seeing women absolutely smash it. And people like Portia Woodman are somewhat like Jonah Lomu was, uh, uh, for the men's game and that you know you can say Porsche and most people know who you're talking about so mm -hmm. there, there has definitely been a, that, that collective consciousness I think um, that's been prepped and is you know is primed to be receiving it but I just don't think yet there has been a shift from those that are administering our game to recognize that and that's a real shame it's a real missed opportunity like I was saying before growth point is our sport and and we've moved past a point where we've got to start seeing it as the you know uh, if we talk about free market uh, you know, principles, which people always love to talk to me about because they'll always be like, oh, but women's sport doesn't sustain itself. Well, at some point, initially, when you're launching any product, you've got to invest in it, and then you get that return on investment. And right now, women's rugby is a smart return on investment because you put a little bit in, and I'm sure you get heaps back. I know from my contacts at Sky that the last season, Farah Palmer Cup, the viewership for that was massive. And I would love... I would love for someone to give me some numbers so I could uh, start calculating what the pay-per-view was for eyeballs of on our competition. Um, you know, how little we get funded and, and how little it is to produce our product versus, say, the ITM Cup, which I know they put a heck of a lot more money into and how much more of an audience did they get? <laughs> so, you know, there's some, there's some real questions to be asked there. But I, the main thing for me is I just think that the... Um, yeah, the powers that be need to catch up to where the excitement is, and the excitement is for our game. Yes, I mean, I'm in total agreement. I mean, you touch on that last point with the, the ICM Cup and the Farah Palmer Cup. I mean, I like I said, I, I consider myself um, a, a very big rugby enthusiast, but I spent bugger all of my time watching the ITM Cup last year. I don't know, it's just the, the, the rugby, the way that the... The competition that was marketed, like you said, like for the people that are at the top making the, the important decisions, um, there isn't a lot of diversity, and it is old male um, park here in Stale. So, yeah, I mean, I, I have my own sort of opinions around it, and like, like of course, you do. I mean, the, the <laughs> I mean, like to, to call you yourself, I guess, um, like, like we mentioned off here, you know, someone who, who is a big advocate for women's rugby, and I mean. The thing that I really wanted to get out of this, and you've already explained it um, pretty thoroughly, is just the negligence that the NZR has shown the women's game, considering the upward trajectory that it has gone on um, the last, what is it, probably two decades, if not from when we won the first World Cup. Uh, so, I mean, yeah, for you, like last year, you made headlines on Twitter or on social media for 
calling out the NZR for their lack of information surrounding the women's game and its competition. So, I mean, was that just the tip of the iceberg for you? Or, you know, was it just the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of what you've witnessed? No, oh, across. mate, like, <laughs> that, one, that one was a funny one, right? Because, look, everybody has really short memories, okay? And, and um, so we come into COVID, we know that there's an economic restriction that's going on. And so when money starts getting tight, they're going to look at programs. And, man, they always cut us. They always cut us. We always are the first one to go because we're a nice to have, not a need to have as far as their strategies go. So it, it, when I say people have short memories, I say that because it was 2010 was the last time that the NZR was under financial pressure. That was, you know, um, the global financial crisis that happened in 2008. That ha took a little bit longer to hit our shores. So it wasn't really until 2009 that things started getting crunchy in terms of New Zealand's economy. And then um, all of a sudden NZR's in financial strife. First thing to ago was um, Farah Palmer Cup at that time. So they, that was a World Cup year, my man. Like that was, we in New Zealand, we have a very short pathway that exists for women to play for New Zealand. Basically there's club, there's Farah Palmer Cup, then there's the black jersey. And they were removing the intermediary step, the step between club and black jersey. So between rocking up on a Saturday and playing against, you know, people that have played for the first time in their life versus playing against England, there's no step there now. Um, and, and they were getting rid of that in a World Cup year. And there's just no way, no way they would do that to the boys. And, and that, like I say, was 10 years ago. So not that long ago, and there's people that, you know, that, that seems to be a surprise. So as soon as I started seeing things and we're getting these press releases and we're getting stuff where there's a whole bunch of chatters, don't worry, we're going to be holding on to Mitre 10 and we're prioritizing this and this, and there'd be one line at the bottom of a press release saying, decisions to come on fire Palmer. Well, I start getting twitchy because I have that muscle memory. And it, it's, you know, I'm like, all right then, mates, like, let's see what's going to happen with that. And I was like, nah, you know what? Let's not wait and see because you wait and see and it's too late. Like, decisions already made. And I guess since then there's been a shift so 2010 right like I wrote letters to people about that and you know I remember um so I ended up working a while back for old um Trevor Mallard here in the hut um and back in 2010 his daughter played for the Black Ferns so I wrote him a letter about um them scrapping the FPC and you know he he was not he was think was the only one that replied to me and none of the papers printed my letters but the um this time around there was a shift as well in terms of ways that you can get messages out there right and so you know Twitter exists uh, in a way that people are more conscious of and so I can just chuck out a, a, a video and me ranting like I normally do and and then suddenly it's it's an equalizer in terms of it gets picked up and so people are, are attaching onto that and let's be real about this too you know there is an element of sensationalism that is like angry women <laughs> are always gonna make news do you know what I mean like there's you know we, that's that's people like shouty ladies it's like oh what's this you know we're supposed to be demure and just say thank you very much for having us but stuff that man like after playing over in England and seeing that half the problems they have like we have they have too I'm just like stuff this this is a global issue and so it's not going to get better in unless we start using our voice for it. So I um, thought I'd chuck some pressure out there because I thought I'll test the waters, eh, and see what people are uh, um, thinking. And the interesting thing about that was I didn't get any um, blowback, and I was ready for it. But, you know, what I what people don't realise either is that, man, if, if people think they can say, like, if online trolls can't say anything to me that hasn't already been said to me down a club rooms 
or on a sideline of a game I've already played, you know? So I'm used to this argument. I've been having it since day one. <laughs> so I was like, let's go, you know, let's crack on. And I, I was in a unique position, I guess, too, in that I'm not a contracted player. Um, I don't have aspirations anymore because I'm too bloody old to be playing in a black jersey. So NZR doesn't own me. They can't touch me, man. So, like, what are they going to do? Like, And while I still have a tiny bit of relevance, which is, you know, playing at least for provincial team um, I can use that to try and leverage and so when I was looking at it and it's a case of okay if I don't say anything what's the worst that can happen well competition could not go ahead and if I do say something what's the worst that could happen well competition for me might not go ahead so either way the outcome was the same but at least in one way I was being true to myself and what I you know thought and believed so that was always going to be an easy option for me so talk calling them out yeah no worries let's go well, like I mentioned again off air, we need more people like you to force these uncomfortable conversations. Well, that's not really an uncomfortable conversation. I mean, that's just, like I said, that's just negligence on the NZR's part. But even then, you know, like going to boards, I mean, you can't directly go to boards, you can write to them. But, you know, just throwing these conversations out into the social media space and, you know, like hoping they get picked up. Because, like I said, there are actually quite a few people out there that, will probably be consuming the the content that you're putting out there or any of your posts, but they won't be interacting with it because they're too scared of what other people will think of them if they go and like it. Um, and unfortunately, bro, that, that's the world that we live in. Yeah. <laughs> my DMs, bro. Like, the, 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 and that's the thing too. And that's why when, you know, when I was cracking off, I was like, no worries, because half of the, the you know, high profile players that exist around New Zealand, they're in my DMs and they're saying, yes, sis, thank you for saying this. And, you know, we agree with you. And different people who I know are in different higher up positions within organizations who, you know, when I've seen them face to face, they were like, yeah. I was in meetings. I know that FPC wasn't a for sure thing. Uh, you know, I had um, New Zealand's Players Association call me up um, after I was on the news and say, you know what, like, what you're doing is useful because that's what we want to happen. And so it's that whole inside outside voices. You know, you need you need you need to have a call and response, right? And and sometimes unless there's the call, there's not necessarily going to be the response. You have to pressure people into prioritizing, you know, your agenda. So you, you've got to help people bump it up there, right? And I definitely agree with you. There is a real issue and, and I would love to see more of New Zealand athletes like becoming more political and by political I don't mean necessarily like uh, general body politics right but I'm talking about like activism for their sports because you look at like the WNBA or like other sports over in the US and how they are so involved in like the collective consciousness and 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 having those you know really important cultural discussions that we should be having too and that actually you know people say sports and politics don't mix bullshit they've mixed our whole existence in New Zealand are you kidding me one of the most formative moments in New Zealand's you know civic civil rights uh, movements is, is the Springbok tour and that's a, a, a flashpoint of politics and sports mixing so it's not an unusual thing but I just would love to see it happen more often and I, I just you know I guess like you're saying it, it I think if one person speaks, then it makes it easier for other people too, right? Because totally. then it's it's a joining of a voice rather than being the only one in the room. And, you know, I'm conscious of that too. Um, and I think I've said this a few times in different places that, like, I'm not actually a, a, a stereotypical uh, 
women's rugby player in New Zealand. You know, I'm a I'm a Pakeha who grew up in Wellington Central. Like that's that's not who really plays women's rugby. Like it, we're we're a much more there's much more Pacifica, much more Maori women that are playing my game. But I'm aware of the privilege that I have as well, and that like uh, my nice white face is more palatable, and 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 people are quite happy to you know. And these are work that I've done in other spaces that I've picked up these skills to be able to speak to this and like my old man's a journo and all of that type of crap that can give me a, a an up in these spaces to be able to speak direct and have less of the blowback because that is you know that is such as the privilege of being white in this country like I will get less blowback than other people so if I can wear that for my sisters I will exactly and I yeah I mean Kilda and thank you very much for doing that in terms of like whether sometimes we like to admit it or not, as minorities, when we're talking about Pacifica and Māori, we are heavily aided uh, when we are supported and spoken with um, with Pākehā. I don't want to I don't want to go too deep down that rabbit hole because otherwise I'd be able to, we'd be chewing each other's ears off. But yeah. Yeah, even on the point of um, talking about um, player empowerment and the, and the the position of power that the athletes have over in America, and I think what we're starting to see now here in New Zealand especially in the rugby sense, is that, that shifting of power actually going back towards the players. Um, yeah. when, when you look at the stuff that Artie Sevier was doing last year with his podcast, um, there's a guy by the name of Isaac John who's doing a similar thing over in the rugby league space over in Australia. And even if you look at the way that the, the contracts are working now with players, you look at the sabbaticals that your Brodie Retallics, your Bowden Barrett's are taking. You know, these players are putting their foot down and knowing their value and the revenue that they're bringing back to the NZR and they're going like, well... If you don't give me, you know, this sabbatical, I'll just take off anyway and go and earn millions because you can't compete with the money that's being yeah. that's thrown at me overseas. And so the money thing's on one side of the ledger, but in terms of just the, the player empowerment, guys actually coming out and speaking their voice and being like, hey, you know, there needs to be a shift up, you know, because there is, and you, you talk about the, the growth of the women's game and the decline in the men's game. And for me, like when I look at the product that gets thrown out there on TV, it's like, yep, it's a very high caliber brand of rugby being played but in terms of the marketability yeah you're bang on like our players don't get to speak their minds yeah. and it, I mean you look at some of the characters and I, and, I, and I hate the name drop but one of them that sort of comes to mind of late is someone like a Duplessis Karifi who is yeah. very well spoken and very articulate um, and you know not not to throw any shade against him because he is he is a he's, he is a funny guy and he is a character but I know of other characters and funnier guys in the rugby space they don't actually put themselves out there because they get told not to by their media teams. And I understand yeah. it in terms of the blowback and the potential for journalists to pick up on things and miswrite them and um, misconstrue them. But I feel like there is we we are really missing an opportunity here with our game, you know, and we could miss the boat uh, with the amount of money that's getting thrown around in Europe, where all of our best players just leave because you know the uh, the product outside of the stuff that's being played on the field is bland and non-relatable and you know uh, this from a player comfort standpoint you know like I don't know I mean I hear you 100% bro and I think I think you like you're spot on right like if we look at what was what was the game in its amateur days it was all characters and then what seemed to happen is you know when rugby professionalized Jonah Lomu happened and man did that scare the NZR because all of a sudden they had a product that was bigger than their brand like he mm -hmm. was bigger than the all blacks right people globally they knew jonah they didn't really care about the ab's like so that they got so burnt by that and scared of that that they shut everything down following that like since him we haven't had like a a 
you know a, a titan or a, a you know someone with that type of cut through you know you you from time to time you have the you know the low, lower down leagues you have your argy bargies like i remember you know being a wellingtonian i remember someone like um jason spice man that guy was a hard case and you'd always be getting into too many arguments on the field but love watching him because it was like what's going to happen this week um but you know like you you, you see you see that and they've 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 made it so commercial that they've taken all the soul and like humanity out of the sport and so it's boring like I'm so bored by it now even and I know this is bad to say we're not supposed to but like even the fact that the that the All Blacks win too much man it's boring I like them better when they were a bunch of chokers and couldn't <laughs> And couldn't deliver what they needed to. I can't say I agree with that, but go on. I'm sure we love winning World Cups. But, like, I love the drama of it. And when Bledisloe, you know, I loved four more years and Gregan in our face. And it sucked and it hurt, but it felt like something. Whereas, mm. like, now it's like, oh, yeah, I mean, we get knocked out of a World Cup last time around. And do I really care? No, because who am I excited about? Japan. Because what a bloody story that is. And, and, and seeing the narrative arc of that. And I just think, you know, and, of course, this is kind of going back to uh i guess what my worker's life has been is you know I've, I've worked previously in politics and my job in politics was teaching people how to tell stories to connect um you know policy and big numbers into relatable things for people right and so i see that in terms of our big sport big sport and we're not doing that part we're not letting people uh connect into like the humanity of people and so yeah you're right players like Adi Savia, um even Lamafe to an extent here and like tj like, we've got a few good ones out of the hurricane setup um who have been more I guess had a little we've had a little flex of their personality that have been allowed but man wouldn't it be exciting if we got in behind and amplified that rather than shutting it down like it, it it's it's frustrating to see these guys being so paranoid and and you talk to sports junos and they're desperate for it mate like they're desperate to have um someone come and be honest and tell a real story with them and i, I just think you don't you don't need to be so scared of of um people being themselves like there is radical power in being yourself as i've come to learn in my short life um and so just like support people to do that and i think if you if you do and if people are being authentic and they're being true to themselves well then they're going to come out with good stuff anyway, and you don't need to be so scared about what it is they're going to say here and are they going to do that. And when you put muzzles on, it doesn't work anyway. I mean, just look at um, old what's-his-face, Falau, over in Australia. Like, you, they told him not to do, he did anyway and caused all types of drama. So, like, people are going to do it regardless, but why, why try and stamp everyone out, make them so scared and not know how to express themselves? Um, then, you know, support them. And, and also, let's talk about, like, what type of ramification that has for players post career well if you're like you're a factory in a conveyor belt of ab's is what it feels like these days like they're all kind of the same dude um i don't know and and then when it comes to the end of their career what type of brand do they have to leverage not really anything like very you know the the most successful ones you see i guess are like the franks brothers who are like you know we train really hard and that's their point of difference do i mean to be fair like... if they have nothing to fall back on they just get thrown in a commentary booth <laughs> yeah, don't even now, get started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm all right there with you. These days, you know. <laughs> hey, I mean, like, I mean, the thing is, I, I mean, that that was a bit of a sly comment, but and <laughs> just touching on that, I mean, like, you, if you get thrown a job opportunity, of course you're going to take it. But I guess for someone like myself who's uh, gone to university, gone and got a degree in communications. Um, yeah. It is a bit of a slap in the face to where these guys just walk straight in when they might not necessarily have 
um, you know, the, the portfolio or the experience, but they get thrown on TV because they're a familiar face and they should have a greater understanding of the game just because they played. But my, my I guess my sort of um, rebuttal to that is if you look at all the great coaches that um, have gone through the all-black sort of regime, maybe besides someone like Eurasia at the moment, a lot of them didn't have a great um, sort of rich history in the game um, outside of maybe playing club footy and maybe a bit of provincial stuff. But again, I'm waffling. Um, and as much as we... Sorry, did you want to... I was going to say you're that? right though, man, because people who are at that very top, those things are instinctive and they've never had to learn how to do them. So they're not going to be good teachers, but they're also not going to be good explainers. Because if I remember when I first started playing and I was in the outside backs and I was fast, right? And people would be like, oh, how do you score that try from there to there? I w- wouldn't be able to tell you. Like it was instinctive and I just had a, I had a gap and I went. But if you ask me about, you know, throwing a ball in at a line out, that's something that I had to learn how to do. And I practiced it for, you know, hours and hours and hours and hours in my backyard. And it's been a conscious learning and a skill that you've had to pick up. And so I can talk about that. And when I watch uh, hookers now and I see what they're doing, I can tell you what they're doing because I've had to watch and I've had to learn. And that's, you're right. Like, it, it frustrates me as well. And I will put a dig in here as well how all our bloody commentators that are ex-players in this country are backs. Can I get one bloody forward? I'm so sick of when they're talking about scrums, they'll just make some absolute nonsense comment. I'm like, you have no idea what's going on. Not even getting started on how they always cut away from the front row when they're about to engage, and that's the interesting part to go look at uh, a first five who's looking bored off into the distance. But, you know, there's no front row. There's never a front row in the commentary. Why is that? Oh, we're not pretty enough, I guess. But, you know, we'd be able to add something different. Hey, into, I, I, I did to throw in there. Um, someone that I did make a shout-out to last year um, on my podcast was actually Kane Hames. Oh, he was yeah, he, yeah. he was thrown in and he was actually really good and I that's the thing I appreciated it. It's like well, when it gets to the scrum stuff and that's the thing for me is uh, as a rugby enthusiast, you know, like although I may act like a, a bit of a know-all in front of my mates when we're watching the games, I'm actually always keen to learn. And so for having yeah. someone like him, um, I guess you know, in color commentary, actually explaining what's going on right there and. I mean, like, for the most part, I'm not even sure if the referees knows what's going on with the scrum. But, they don't. <laughs> but, but, but when you've got the a prop on there explaining, yeah. Joe Moody yeah. gets away with. The amount of stuff that Joe Moody gets away with just goes to show that nobody and those referee like, know what's going on. He is forever angling in, and I don't know how he gets away with it, but good on him, I guess. Yeah, totally. Now, um, this may seem like just a bit of a rant for both of us to you know, talk about all the bad <laughs> stuff that the ends are down, but I do want to take this opportunity, again, for someone who's been around the game for an extended period of time, there has to have been some sort of positive stuff done by the NZR, um, even if it is just the littlest bit, and with that, you know, again, can, can you take the mic from me and maybe talk about some of the stuff that's been a positive change and how potentially we can build on that? Yeah, man, like I think, okay, so for example, um, there has been, like last year, the NZR did put, I think it was 90k into the high performance units, uh, sorry, high performance units for each of the provincial unions. And so that was about basically making sure that an academy was set up for women so that we could develop people there. Uh, Good unions, places like Auckland, like match that with local funding as well. And so they're really doing some very cool stuff um, in that area around getting right into 
the you know schoolgirl stuff all the way through, um, doing some more innovative things. You know, when I was talking about my high school journeys, uh, starting out and being uh, you know part of a composite team, so us and Newlands College. Well, what they're doing there is for under 15s, they're attaching those girls into clubs, so they're building relationships back into clubs. Personally, I think that's where we should move girls anyway. Um, forget about making them play for their high school, get them play for their local clubs. Um, but they're doing that, and it's it's offering up good reward. And I think I would also say, look, I mean, and to be fair, most of this funding has come from high, um, high Performance New Zealand rather than NZR, but the Blackfern Sevens have got to be the success story, right? Um, that was a, a program that, you know, I remember because the longest go story of that was, yeah, Sevens was my sport, first sport. They got rid of Sevens when I was about uh, 16, so they cut all Sevens for women. Um, and then they had to scramble quickly when it became an Olympic sport, and they brought in the Go for Gold program. Um, and the way that that has built off the back of that, and now what Alan's doing with that, Alan Bunting's doing with that crew, is really cool. And if we could take his approach and, and duplicate that in all our spaces would be hissing. And I think that um, it's that whole thing of, man, it takes the just tiniest bit of sprinkling because there's so much talent in this um, country to just explode. And the other thing I guess I'd talk about is like Ignite Sevens as well. That You know, I was frustrated this um, last season. I know obviously COVID changed things up, that it was taken away from what it had been, which was, you know, kind of the youth, um, exposure program and you know a couple of them uh, of the players you know winning a, a sevens contract um, but that was really that's been a really exciting thing to watch off the back of condors as well I think sevens is a part of the game where they've really nailed it for women because they they didn't have I guess a really strong structure for dudes either like it was something that they were like it's still relatively new in comparison and and hasn't always been um, hugely resourced and so there was more of a blank sheet for designing something and and what they've managed to put together is really cool and I would love to see us give give the same opportunity to 15s um, and I think it will take like some different thinking but I think we have we have got the you know the talent and the will. I just think it's just going to take a little bit of courage to to say that this is something that is no longer like I say a nice to have. This is a necessity because we are a key part of the sport, so we actually need to be serviced just as membership. You know, unions are made up of members, and and we're we're part of that membership. So, I think that there has been that. I also think just probably visibility, man, would be the other thing I would say. Like, I definitely did notice coming back from the UK. Uh, like last year and I was, sorry, in 2019 and um, I was walking down the street and I was looking in a pub and there was a woman's game on TV and it was the first time in my life that I couldn't tell you what game it was because uh, we just had FPC rap, the Oceania series was going on where Black Ferns, Black Ferns Development, uh, Fiji, Samoa all playing against each other. Uh, there was also uh, starting to be, um, oh, there was a World 7 series that were going on. So I you know, only caught two seconds of it, but I was like, it could be multiple different games. Uh, that could be on TV and, and happening, and that's exciting. And that's you know, like I remember the first time I ever watched women's rugby on TV was 2003, when um, the Black Ferns played a World 15, and Hannah Porter kicked a, um, a penalty from, oh, sorry, a conversion from the sideline, drop kicked it at the final minute. It was badass, and I remember that. That was the first time I saw women play. But this was could have been several different games, and that's awesome. And so with that, you know, getting more coverage means that we can get highlight package, means that people can get excited about it and start to see some of these stars. You know, like um, I think about people like Baby, like Aisha, and people like, wow, she's amazing. Like she's big.
been amazing. She's been amazing in the club scene for ages, but now people are recognizing, you know, people like Portia, people, they, they, she blows their mind. She's been around for ages. Kendra, for goodness sake, she um, grew up in Taranaki. We played against each other at secondary schools, but you know, now um, everyone's like, whoa, Kendra Coxedge. So these players have been around for a while. They were just waiting for that opportunity to shine. And so now that there's been that spotlight on them, it's blowing up. So the more opportunity that we can give them in terms of playing time, in terms of um, visibility of those games, it's just going to go massive from there. So I think everything is just kind of simmering away and it's just going to boil over at some point. It's just a matter of turning up that heat, yeah? Yeah, 100%. And then on that note of visibility, like in terms of the girls that are coming through and that are wanting to play rugby or just even have a have an inkling to try and play it, you know, you, you can't be what you can't see. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the, the visibility would have been the, the one that stuck out for me and my lack of knowledge around the women's game. Um, but even building on that, um, in terms of all the good stuff that you just touched on, for you, uh, in your own opinion, what are some immediate remedies and even long-term changes that if you had the power to do so, you'd just run right now? But again, with that, like, I mean, you can aim for the stars but like in yeah. terms of like looking at it from a from a realistic standpoint I'm, I'm really keen to get um your sort of thoughts around where we could be better with the women's yeah, game yeah cool i mean i think okay first and foremost let's let, let's make fire palmer into what it really should be um that that cup competition and, and really make it the opportunity to develop depth of talent in this country like we're, we're smashing everybody but we're barely even doing anything to deserve that you know like so i think First and foremost, let's acknowledge that. Let's double the length of that competition. Something to do straight away. Last season, you know, me playing for Wellington, we had five guaranteed games. That was it. And then if we made playoffs, we'd get extras. We didn't, so we had five. That's not enough. That's not enough to uh, get people motivated to get in shape uh, to turn out for. That's not enough to get people and fans engaged and, um, you know, supporting us. So that's something really quick straight away. Double it. The best thing for me personally that impacted my game was when I went over to the UK and got to play a season that ran from September through to April. And that was just like the most game time I'd had at a high level. And just playing that week on week, there's no substitute for that. So let's extend the running time of a Fire Palmer Cup. And with that, let's also look at the scheduling and the split of that. Last season, we went to North and South. That was due to COVID um, restrictions. Revert back to Premiership Championship. That's really important because certain teams um, and certain unions aren't at the... Um, the stage to be able to go against the um, bigger sides. So let's not have big beat-ups on Tasman, on Taranaki, on North Harbour. Let's let them play each other because that was working really well in 2019. Let's go back to that, but let's also, also bring back what we did in 2017, which was crossover matches. So allow them to have a couple of times to flex against the um, bigger developed unions, but retain you know some um, money and dignity within their own teams that they're not just getting smashed each week because you don't you learn nothing from that you retain you grow nothing so do that length double the length of that if you do that that then gives everybody else something to aim for that's and you're then going to get the cream of the crop to be able to pick for your um your national sides and if you do that too you're then going to get able to get people get excited about get it to um, be leveraged by media get the visibility even bigger and and i would say off the back of that don't necessarily worry too much about what's on sky although those matches that you do put on sky please please let's look at scheduling those smarter so the amount of times this last season 
you know, I was doing during the season just like 97 second wraps and telling people um, which games to watch during the week. And and very rarely would be that be the one that was actually on Sky, which was all good because actually that was another cool thing that they did this year. They made sure that I think virtually all of the games were streamed if they weren't online. That's cool. Stream's a fine way for us to get out, out things out there at the moment. I'm not really worried about putting um, it behind the paywall while we're still growing our audience. Um, but if you are putting them on Sky... Make sure it's the big, um, the big show. Make sure it's the best, um, most competitive match of the week. You know, the best game I saw this season was Northland playing Auckland. Man, that game was epic. Um, and that luckily was on TV, but there was also a couple of awesome matchups that never were. And you've got to tell people to go back and watch the stream, you know, and, and that's a shame. So I think being smarter around, okay, you're only going to give us one game a week that's on TV, Let's really make sure that that is the best showcase of women's rugby, not the one that just happens to be played before the men's game that week, which is often how it goes. Um, so, and, and, and let's be smart about that too, because there's ways of scheduling it. If that's how you're going to do it, you can, write a, you can write a draw that aligns as such to align those things. But it just takes a little bit more resource and a little bit more time. So I guess, yeah, my, my long ramble to that is... Invest in the FPC, double the length of the competition. That's going to create pathways that are clearer for players. It's going to create a product that is then going to be able to be packaged up and sellable and, and consumable for um, people that want to get excited about the rugby. They get to see people as they develop. Uh, let's also then look at, uh, off the back of that, then you are excited and you know the players that are in the black rooms because you've been watching them all season in the same way that we feel that pride of ownership of you know, our local region players, you can have that connection um, with your Black Ferns too. So I think, for me, that's the big thing. And, and if you do that, and if you want to grow women's sport and support and support it, it's really simple. It's like, give it your clicks, give it your eyeballs, give it your dollars, okay? We need you to turn up. <laughs> so if you're, if you're going to get in behind and support, any time that there is, um, you know, any social media post that's about women's rugby engage with it even if that's like just give it a like i don't even care if you watch the video give it a like because that type of stuff is monitored you know um and don't be an idiot and write who cares which is you know just we had a there was a um campaign that went off over the weekend because a whole bunch of guys thought that'd be a cool thing to write over in the uk anyway um so give it give it you know your positive enthusiasm support your local girl gang man there'll be a there'll be a um if you're at a men's club and you've got a woman's team go down and watch them don't tell me, Prems, that you can't do that. That's bullshit. Here in Wellington, we kick off at 11.30. I know you're not playing till 2. You can be there. <laughs> so get down and support your women's team. Um, if you if you don't, can't do that, watch them on the stream. If you can do that, can't do that, watch them on the online. Follow your mates on Instagram. Find people that play for our, um, you know, our teams. Get in behind and support them too. Give them the opportunity for sponsorship. Like get in and, and give them those likes too, so that they can build their brand and their platform. So just engage with it. Is I guess the um, engage with it and value it, and, and it'll grow from there. Well, yeah, you, you certainly. Um barking up the right tree with me in terms of <laughs> my own interest with the women's stuff and especially now um, because I am making a concerted effort to learn a lot cool, more man. around the game um, I, I will definitely need to be backing that up by um, not sure about coming to watch Tony, um, might have to find <laughs> another club Hey, but, yeah. if we play Wainui man, you can come watch that <laughs> Definitely, definitely, but yeah, I, ca I can't make any promises as to who 
if as uh, sorry, I'll rephrase it. I can't make any promises as to whether or not there are any important people who work for the NZR that listen to my podcast. But if they do, hopefully they can take on board even a smidgen um, of the recommendations that you've just given us. But yeah, I think that um that, that wraps up um a, a good hefty talk and it's been really really informative Alice and yeah like like I, like I mentioned before I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and enlighten me on where the women's game was and how it's changed in your time and even more so the the negligence that still exists um where the work-ons are and there seem to be plenty of work-ons but but also we also acknowledge and that was the one thing that I wanted to ensure that we did with this to actually acknowledge the good stuff that's happened but not to stop there build on it um, and especially with the World Cup that we have coming up this year um, which again will be massive in terms of like giving girls the opportunities to not only watch um, our tour wahine on TV but also to have the opportunity to go out and watch them and then potentially lift a World Cup trophy but um, yeah that's just how I've taken from this conversation hopefully you've enjoyed it um, and yeah like I mentioned before in terms of me turning up to games or we have to catch up at some stage since you're a winery <laughs> local and I have to shout you a beer in the club rooms if you come and yeah yeah I'll game. put on my blazer mate and come back down to the club rooms they love me there <laughs> okay kia ora Alice thank you very much for your time um, and until we catch up in person stay safe sweet man thank you so much